Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now, I am so excited to share today's discussion with all of you. We are going to be talking about how you can approach your job offer negotiation. And I think all of us are familiar with this situation where we've been through an interview process, we've just gotten an offer, and now we are wondering, okay, is this offer good enough? Can I try and get something a bit higher? And if I do want to do that negotiation, how should I do it? That negotiation isn't always easy for each of us. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So our guest today is Ed Chang. And Ed is a former FANG manager, where FANG stands for the top five tech companies, uh, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. So Ed has worked as an employee and as a manager at some of these tech companies. And now he runs his own consulting company called Zerosum Consulting, where he helps tech workers negotiate their best possible compensation package. And I'll share this really funny quote from one of Ed's former clients, which says, it was like I was leaving four Teslas on the table every year. Which I thought was funny, but also so insightful in that there is scope for so much increase if you negotiate your job offer well. And that's what I found really interesting about this discussion with Ed, where he shared a lot of interesting insights around what is the right time to share your salary expectations? Should you reveal your salary expectations or not? The importance of research, the importance of your relationship with the recruiter and how the recruiter plays a really important role in this entire process. So I think you'll find this discussion really helpful. I hope you do. A few housekeeping notes before we get into the discussion. If you find this discussion helpful, please do share it with others. The more people listen to LED or check out the website, it really helps LED and sustain this small little initiative. So please do share it with others. If you want to check out other episodes that we've done in the past or check out some of the resources that we offer, you can go to our website at learneducatediscover.com. And on the website, you can also subscribe to our email newsletter. Our newsletter is really the best way to stay updated on new episodes as well as helpful career resources that we think can help you. So check out our website at learneducatediscover.com where you'll find everything that we've done on LED so far. If you have any questions for me or for Ed or just any ideas or if you just want to say hi, please email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at LED underscore curator. All right, that was the end of the housekeeping notes. And now let's get into the discussion with Ed. Ed, hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for making the time. And I have been really looking forward to this conversation because comp is so important for all of us. All of us really care about it. And even though it's so important, it's there's so much variation that exists in comp and so much of it depends on just how well you're able to negotiate at the beginning when you mm-hmm. get an offer. So I think this is going to be mm-hmm. extremely helpful for a lot of people. Okay, great, great. So let's start out with um, a, a very simple question. Let's say, uh, so, and actually, just to set context for everyone, we are going to be talking about negotiating your offer assuming that you're recruiting for a company in tech. But I would imagine that the tactics that you're going to be sharing with us, they should apply to other industries also. Yes, I would imagine that they would apply across a broad range of industries. Of course, if you're applying for a job that's, uh, that has higher pay, then there's going to be more range for negotiation. If you're doing an entry-level job or uh, maybe like a retail or a minimum wage job, then there's not nearly as much uh, um, flexibility in negotiations. 
uh, totally and uh, totally makes sense but I, I would imagine that the principles are potentially going to be transferable so let's see so let's start with let's say i'm a candidate and i'm at the beginning of my recruiting process and a lot of times a recruiter might ask you one do you have a level in mind your target level and what is your current level so is what would be your advice for how a candidate should answer this question mm i think it would depend on the candidate um i think everyone is hoping to when they interview for another job hoping to get themselves into another position where they're being paid more and maybe uh correspondingly that they have a higher level as well but the company is trying to figure out if you can do the job at that level so they don't want to in some sense overlevel you and have you interview and maybe get a job that you're not qualified for so there's some um I don't know if I'd call it negotiation but there's some interplay back and forth there. Uh if you're a if you're a new grad um typically there is a new grad level that's set at various companies yeah. at the fan companies that would be typically level 3 for a uh, starting engineer. Um but if you're experienced in industry or if you're going to a startup um it's uh, a lot more flexible. So to answer your question if a company's asking you kind of uh what level you're going for uh you can do your research at the beginning and get an idea for what level suits your level of experience and also um your kind of your ambitions for the type of job that you want to do gotcha and so i i think that makes a lot of sense that if you're a new grad then of course mm-hmm. you know they kind of know that that's kind of what you're doing right now and so that right. the level that you're going to enter at is going to be pretty much fixed if you're experienced mm-hmm. there's much more flexibility Would you recommend right. would you recommend candidates to reveal their current level and this would apply to someone who is perhaps who perhaps feels that you know maybe their current level is not representative of their capabilities and they're looking to get a, a level jump Right in that case I would not recommend that they reveal their level if they feel that the work that they're doing and the experience that they have both the years of experience as well as the job responsibilities they've had in the past and job successes if they feel that that qualifies them for another level then i think they should just go ahead and talk this this and this and i believe this is that level of work i see i see so so simply so do not reveal your current level Uh, but, exactly. But talk about right. you're, the target. Yeah, you're under no obligation to reveal any information that is not going to be helpful to your cause. Yeah. What what would what would you suggest as a good way of framing your response to a question like that from the recruiter? Um well, as I'd said, I think one way of framing it is by um saying the level that you're going for and then backing that up with the work that you're currently doing or the mm-hmm. work that you've already done. Mm-hmm. Um another way of uh framing it is if you have ideally uh friends that you've worked with who are also at that company and you know the type of work that they do and that you can compare yourselves against them in kind of a benchmark that can work as well. So I know people who have gone from one a uh, large company to another and there there had been historically a lot of transfer back and forth between these two companies so then the person when they interviewed um they just told the recruiter oh i know these three people and they're all at this level and i've worked with them in the past and so i believe that i'm at that level as well and so i'd like to interview at that level gotcha gotcha yeah that's a great idea if if you can kind of establish certain benchmarks for the recruiter uh to use Exactly. And there may be cases in which uh revealing your level could be advantageous as well. Let's say that you are a senior engineer, which would be say level 5 at uh Google or at Meta. Um and then you wanted to interview for a level 6, a level staff position. Uh let's say that you've been level 5 for a couple years um and that you're uh you believe that you've been operating at a level 6, you've been getting um high performance ratings and you're either in the process when the recruiter over to your side you could be a uh, very transparent and open and say you know I'm level 5 right now but I've been level 5 for 4 years ago 
uh, Google say, um, my last two uh, performance review cycles, I've been at the Strong Lake Seeds rating. So uh, my managers told me that I should be going for promotion this cycle. I am going for promotion this cycle, but I'd like to explore an opportunity at, say, at um, Amazon or at Apple or at, uh, or at Meta for this uh, equivalent position that I'm going for a promotion for. Mm, yeah, actually, yeah. So that's really helpful, and and I think a good recruiter, if you present them with this kind of data, would help you. Then at least they'll help you make the case, and then it's up to the hiring committee, I guess. Exactly. So this kind of gets into a, a deeper question. I know you said you're going to start off with a a simple question, but <laughs> the deeper question is how you handle your relationship with the recruiter. So the recruiter is going to be the one who kind of. Um, makes or breaks your candidacy with the company and is going to be the one who has, in some sense, the one who's relaying the offer and the one who's um, negotiating on your behalf with Mm -hmm. the uh, with the rest of the compensation committee at that company. So you want to get the recruiter on your side as much as possible, which means that the more information you give the recruiter, the um, the more that they will like you and want to fight for you. That's conversely, if you give them too much information, then then um, and you show them the the bad cards in your hand, then they'll um, in their mind they can lowball you a little bit because they have such a complete picture that they'll know that you're not um, as good a candidate as you'd like to present yourself. So it's mm. a fine line to walk between those two. Mm. Am I clear on that? Yes, yes. Actually, this is a really really good point, which is that I think a lot of people may not think of the recruiter as much more than more of a channel between themselves and the you know the, the interviewers and whoever's making the final hiring decision but you're bringing mm. out a really important point that the final offer especially like the comp and you know whatever else that you'll negotiate for which we'll get into the details of later but it is the recruiter is perhaps the only one who is going to be making the case for you and so the recruiter is on your side not the company's side is, is that correct? Right. The recruiter is on both sides. They're trying to, uh, the recruiter scores a win when they can get high quality candidates for the company. Um, and the way they do that is they, um, they want the company to be happy and they want the employee to be happy or the new recruit to be happy. And they want to set an offer that's so high that the, uh, that the recruit um, is willing to leave their current position and willing to forego other job offers. Mm-hmm. So the recruiter themselves um, um, are playing a, a delicate balancing game just like you are. Right, 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 right. So this then dovetails well with the next question, which is, mm-hmm. let's say now, you know, so I've, I've gone through the interviews and I, I have an offer. And so mm-hmm. now we are getting into the stage of actually figuring out the, the your compensation package. So if the recruiter asks you, do you have a number in mind? How would you mm-hmm. suggest responding to that question? Right. Um, first of all, I would definitely want to have numbers in mind. Um, let's get to what we talk, talk to the recruiter or what we tell the recruiter later. But initially, I think it's so important to have done your own research and know what you're coming into because you know, like they say, knowledge is power. And this is one case where having that knowledge is probably one of the most important times in your life financially. Imagine that you were investing in the stock market and you were just picking stocks by the name of the company. Oh, I like the name Apple. That sounds like <laughs> such a cute uh, cute name for a computer company. I'm going to put a lot of money into it. I think that people wouldn't advise that you pick stocks that way. But a lot of people go into salary negotiations not having done the research that they would have done in the stock market. So just like in the stock market, there's a lot of information available on the web. You can see the company's um, uh, publicly released numbers. You can read articles about how people feel about the company, of what people are saying about the supply chain and upcoming products. You can get a very informed decision about investing in stocks. Similarly, you should do the same thing on your career. There's a lot of information publicly on the web and at websites like levels.fyi and glassdoor um, that give you a lot of data a lot of data points on the range of salaries you should be expecting so that's one source of information another source of information i would say that's not in the public databases is you should go uh, talk to your friends especially those who have gotten offers 
uh, from the company that you're applying to and talk to them about the offer that they got. Presumably, they're, uh, they're good friends and they're willing to share that information with you. Um, hopefully, you belong to some professional or networking uh, organizations, um, such as, for instance, Women in Product, which uh, my friend Deb Liu um, helped found uh, that organization. There are, there's a lot of uh, conversations within the forums on that organization on um, people helping each other out and trying to give each other information on um, on the offers that they're getting to make sure that everyone in the group is getting a fair offer. So that's a second uh, way of getting information, not through publicly available uh, websites. And the third form of information would be, I think, finding a, a consultant. Like I myself run a compensation negotiation service, and there are other services that you can find on the web where you can talk to a coach, and they will go through their own databases and take a look at your specific situation and give you a more narrow range of numbers that you should be expecting. Yeah, yeah. So this is actually really, really helpful, Ed. So uh, let's definitely highlight the resources you, you mentioned, glassdoorlevels.fyi. Uh, of course, you know, using your network, whether it's your friends or any professional organizations that you might be a part of, or working directly with a consultant slash coach, someone like yourself or other companies. What research would you recommend candidates do? So definitely what is the comp range that companies are giving for a particular level? Anything else? Um, yes, I would try to understand how the comp is broken down too, because um, total comp range as a number by itself is useful, but what's more useful is knowing how much of that is in salary, uh, bonus, uh, initial equity grant, and then what their equity refresh policy is. And by having those numbers and by constructing a spreadsheet to see how the numbers add up over time, um, equity is not a very straightforward um, thing to calculate. Uh, even if you ignore the variations in the stock market, of which we've seen a lot the past couple months, mm -hmm. even if you ignore all that, uh, the fact is that when you're given equity, you go through a fairly complex vesting schedule. Usually you don't vest anything for the first year, and then one year into it, you get a quarter of it, and then you either get monthly or every uh, quarter after that, a chunk of it until the initial grant runs out. But then there's equity refreshes on top of that, and those depend on your um, performance at the company and how you rate it at the company. Um, depending on, on that, um, the equity refreshes are a fraction of your initial equity grant, so that at the end of your four years at the company, when the initial equity has run out, the refreshes stacked together should be approximately what your initial equity grant is. And so it often leads to a case where people are making more um, in their fourth year of the company than they are in the fifth year of the company because of the, the way the equity refresh grants mm -hmm. have stacked up. Um, but I'm just giving a very verbal overview. I know that for somebody who's not really thought about how their equity looks like and they kind of just get their paycheck, uh, all these numbers may be flying over your head. Um, I would um, maybe to speak to uh, your question about what people should be looking for in an offer is people should first understand how their current compensation is structured and then what that new structure would look like if they accepted an offer at another company um, given some base round numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And if you have, are you aware of any resource that breaks down what a typical tech offer consists of? you know, how equity vests and how your initial grant and the re later on equity refresh grants, how that math works out? No. Um, on the publicly available sites that I've talked about, people just talk about total compensation. And I don't think they go into that level of detail. I personally wouldn't want to go interviewing for another job without knowing that level of detail and knowing what my offer is year after year. But that level of detail is hard to encapsulate and capture in a site like levels.fyi, for instance. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you go to the Levels FYI website, you'll see that they have a lot of information. You can choose different companies. Uh, you can compare different companies and compare different levels at different companies. 
properties and see where the pay scales line up. So you can see that, oh, maybe a level seven at Amazon is equivalent to either between a level six and a level seven at Google in terms of total compensation. That's the type of information you can get at levels FYI. And then they'll break that down between the salary bonus and equity. But they're not going to break down what that how that spreads out over four years. Right, 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 right. Yeah, okay. So yeah, so then coming back to the original question. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you've done your research and you're like, okay, you know, let's say that I'm targeting L5, it could be an engineer, could be a product manager, could be, you know, user researcher, whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. for that function, I have some sense for what the salary range is like and how it splits across your bonus, your, your base, your equity. Now the recruiter comes and asks you, do you have a number in mind? What should you say? Right. Um, In this case, I would strongly recommend not being the first person to give a number. Um, I would say to the recruiter, if they asked me if I have a number in mind, I would say that um, I've done research, uh, I've talked to some friends, or I've looked at numbers at levels.fyi, so I have a, a rough idea of what the off range would be and can you the recruiter help me get to the higher end of that range Hmm. i see okay 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 so you're saying you kind of so i guess you're then almost using levels.fyi as the authoritarian authoritative source for figuring out what your salary should be Right. That's one source that you can use to figure it out. And you could bring that up to the recruiter and say, hey, I've looked at those numbers that has this range. I've talked to some other friends. They're either in that range or on the high end of that range, or maybe in some cases might be outside that range. Mm-hmm. Um, so without naming specific numbers to the recruiter, you can mm-hmm. say, hey, I've looked at these sources, whether it's levels or Glassdoor or talking to friends and, and say that, um, I'm aware of the general range, but mm-hmm. I would like your help in getting me to uh, the high end of that range. Um, how can work we work? How can we work together in that? I what see. can I do for you to help to help give you ammo for the offer committee so that you can help argue for a higher range? Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Okay, I see. And one follow up question to this: I've noticed that sometimes when you do this, like you don't share a number and you want them mm-hmm. to come up with a number first. Um, what I've noticed is that sometimes a recruiter would come back and say that, no, I understand that you're, you know, you're of course looking to get paid, what makes sense, but I, I want to make sure that whatever number you have in mind is at least within our ballpark because, you know, if it's beyond our range, then, you know, then I don't want to prolong this conversation. Like I've seen recruiters use that as a tactic have you come mm-hmm. across something like that? And if yes, like, you know, what should you say? Right. Um, I haven't actually seen that tactic recently because at least in California where a lot of the tech industry is, it's illegal for recruiters to ask you what your compensation is. They can ask you number of shares or how much equity you have invested and they can try to uh, work backwards from your total compensation, but you're under no obligation to give it to them. Mm -hmm. So what I've seen more recently is recruiters kind of throwing out ballpark numbers. Like Mm -hmm. I recently worked with someone who got an offer from Meta and before they got to uh, actually a verbal offer, um, he said, you know, the uh, the low end of the offer is, is going to be at this point. It's definitely going to be higher than this, but the low end is this. I just wanted to kind of set your expectations. Mm-hmm. And then I had advised the um, my client to uh, to go back and say, oh, that's lower than I was expecting because I was looking at the numbers on levels.fyi, and that would be below the median for, for that range. Okay, okay. Um, but I haven't seen uh, recently um, the, any cases of recruiters saying you have to give us a number first. Usually, if you if you're at the stage where you're going to get an offer, it's incumbent on the company to provide those numbers first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's extremely helpful information. So you know, assuming that the recruiter asks you for a number, you kind of say that, look, I've done my research. I, I want to get I want to get paid well. You know ideally the higher end of the range and so now they come back to you with an offer how do you figure out if this is a good or not so good offer what should be your next step right 
Um, so if they come back to you with, uh, with firm numbers saying that uh, we'd like to give you a verbal offer of this, this, and this, where this would be kind of the salary, the bonus, and the equity over four years. And then ideally, the recruiter will be also transparent with you and talk about what the equity refresh um, policy is at the company. Then you should take those numbers, you should put them into your spreadsheet, and you should compare that spreadsheet against other offers that you may be juggling at this point, or at least what your current compensation is, to see how much of a gain you're making. So, for instance, um, let's say that your total compensation is going to be uh, $500,000 uh, next year. And then you get an offer, let's say, from Apple. And then you go through and or work out all the numbers. And you see that the first year is going to be $600,000. Then the next year is going to be six hundred and fifty, dollars uh, maybe because of equity refreshes, et cetera. And then you look at that and say, well, in the first year that I'm going, I'm making a 20% gain from $500,000 to $600,000. i am happy with that. Or maybe I'm not happy with that. I think that's uh, one way to look at it, to frame things against your, your current compensation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think I'd also want to then compare those numbers against what you've heard other people have gotten for that same level of position to see if you're being uh, paid fairly with that offer. Gotcha. Yeah. So use your use your research with your friends and with levels or FII and your current comp to come up with some, you know, how much of an increase are you seeing and how that percentage is going to stack up year over year as your equity vests. Right, exactly. And then finally, uh, if you're not happy after all of that, uh, you can come up with the specific reasons that you're not happy with it and then go back to the recruiter. Um, for instance, you could go to the recruiter and say, um, listen, thank you for getting us to the stage. I appreciate the work you've done to get this offer. However, this offer is not significantly higher than kind of what I'm currently making. And if I'm going to take the risk of changing jobs to uh, to join your company, I'd like there to be a, a more significant bump. You could frame it that way, even without revealing what you're currently making. You could basically mm-hmm. say what you're currently offering is you could say it's either below or not not high, not much of a, um, an increase above what you're currently making. That's mm-hmm. one way you could frame it. Mm-hmm. Another way you could frame it is, Oh, compared to the numbers I've seen on levels.fyi, this number is on the lower end or not close enough to the higher end as I was hoping for. Or say that, you know, I've talked to a pair of friends who recently got uh, this level of job at the same company and their offers were in this range. So I was hoping to be hitting this range. So those are three different um, benchmarks you could use. But what's really important here is not to just come back and say, you know, I want more money. It's, I think, having a reason uh, that your frame it behind can make you sound more rational and less greedy, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. And, you know, the recruiter also, if they have to make something happen for you, they need to back it up with some some reason as to why that raise is justified. Typic- exactly. Typically, how much raise should should a candidate shoot for? It depends on the type of company that they're um, they're going for, like whether it's a large tech company or a startup, and the type of position that they're going for. Um, when you say how much of a raise, do you mean beyond their current position or beyond the first verbal numbers that they were given from the recruiter? Uh, so definitely compared to my current compensation. So like, you know, if I'm changing a job, then, you know, should I be, what's a good percentage increase? Is it 20%? Is it 50%? Is it 100%? So that's one. The second one is something Mm -hmm. which I think is a nuance that I am not familiar with, but I would like to get an answer to that question also. Got it. Right. So for the first one, I think that if people could be getting 100% raises by changing jobs, then changing jobs would be happening even more frequently than it's happening right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think <laughs> it's it's highly unusual. Yeah. The biggest jump I've seen for a tech company is someone who uh, was recently promoted and they got the same level at, uh, at another big tech company and their total compensation went up by close to 50%. Uh, 50%. Yeah. But that is a highly 
highly unusual case. Mm. Um, I think typically the compensation jumps are more like in the 20 to 30 percent range from what I've seen in the past year. Gotcha. And that and that that is in the overall comp ac- across like right. your, yes, so adding everything exactly. up. Yes. Right. Um, so for for instance, someone who's making 500. Um, K in total comp at one company, interviews at another company, they get an offer, they negotiate, and at the end, they get 600 or somewhat higher than 600 for a 20 or say 25 or 30% maybe um, bump in total compensation. Yeah, yeah. So, and then you asked me a follow-up question that that which I didn't fully understand, but is there a nuance that I'm missing here? Right. The follow-up question I had asked was, are you asking me to tell you about the comparison of how much can they negotiate for like from the initial number that was given yeah. how much wiggle room is there with a the company yeah 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 i would love to hear that yes right right um i think it depends on how serious they were with the number that they gave you initially like in the case that i had told you about where i'd advised a a client and the recruiter came back and said, oh, it's going to be at least this number. That number ended up being a very much a low ball. And the, the final number was um, something like 30 or 40% higher than what that initial number was. Right. So there was a, a huge, a huge, huge jump. Mm-hmm. Um, but in most cases, I, I think that once a recruiter has gotten the uh, the committee to create an offer and they're giving it to the uh, the person verbally, uh, that offer is kind of an anchor that is not going to uh, change by more than usually, say, 10% or so. So um, in the case of, let's say that I'm going to um, use the case of someone who is earning 500000 and they get an offer from another company at 600000 and they're wondering, how much higher can I push it? I'd be surprised if they were able to push that offer more than to 650000 once they have that 600000 offer in verbally and, say, over email. Because mm. once that is set, then, um, then that means that the offer committee has already uh, evaluated it once. However, if it wasn't at that point, let's say that the recruiter had said, oh, we're looking at at least 600000 but it could be much higher than that. Then in that case, because there's no actual um, numbers that the company is committing to for an offer, um, in that case, it could go quite a bit higher. It could go, say, in the 700000 range. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is a really, really important point, which is that choosing your timing of your negotiation. So you're saying that the most important time and where there is the most scope for the numbers to change is before they create that verbal offer. Exactly. I see. Exactly. I see. Right. I see. Right. Before they create the verbal offer, because once the verbal offer is created, that means it's gone through committee and the company has uh, committed to it because they've committed to saying that we're going to let the recruiter give these real numbers to the candidate. If the candidate says, yes, we're going to bring them on. So we'd better make sure about these numbers. And when they say we'd better make sure about these numbers, then there's not that much give to say that, oh, we're going to just increase these numbers by 20% at this point because they already deliberated to come up with those numbers. So ideally, you work with a recruiter to try to get those initial numbers as high as you can. Which means that when you get your offer and you're having that first conversation with the recruiter where she, he or she is trying to figure out that, okay, you know, I want to put together a good offer for you. Do you have a number in mind? Th- that is probably the most important conversation as far as negotiation goes, because you want to give the right frame of reference and your expectations. to the Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Okay. You hit it on the nail precisely. Okay. Okay. So th- this is extremely helpful. Ed. I don't think I knew that. Uh, so this is uh, really good to know. Um, another question for you. So, you know, um, Actually, let's go ahead with the negotiation thing and maybe, I mean, feel free to weave this in. You know, at some point, I do want to weave in how a negotiation doesn't have to be purely about money. It can also be Mm -hmm. about leveling. It could be about, you know, where you want to work from. It could be about the sign-on bonus. So there are so many other things that go into this. So uh, please feel free to weave that in at any point or you can tackle that later. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess I want to understand a bit of, you know, since we talked about how this conversation with the recruiter when he or she is trying to put together an offer for you, how that conversation is extremely important. Can you share some examples of what is the best way to be framing conver- framing your your points without seeming pushy? Right. That is super important because like I said at the beginning, you are building up a relationship with the recruiter and you want the recruiter to be in your corner trying to convince the offer committee that this is a super valuable candidate, that their that your interview performance and all the other signals that you have justify your coming in at this level and at the high end of this level for the compensation ban. So since um, I do want to uh, return to the questions that you had asked if I could weave in. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is about location. I would say that discussion about location ought to really happen before the interviews even uh, and much before the, the offer negotiation because the recruiter is trying to match you up with a hiring manager. The hiring manager may have preferences. They may not have preferences and they may say, oh, this person can work remotely. Or they may say, I want all my team members in, say, the Bay Area so that we can have team meetings and that we can be together at least a few times a week. Um, If you like live in LA, for instance, and you are not willing to um, change your location over to the Bay Area, at that point, there's no real reason even to go through the interviews, much less mm-hmm. get to the offer stage. Mm-hmm. So I would say working with recruiter and a good recruiter would be asking you this at the beginning anyway about your location preferences. Right. What I would definitely not advise doing is saying, oh, once you've got your offer, now looking at location and saying, hey, I wonder if I can um, – get a transfer to a different location as part of the process because this is setting back the recruiter um, and it's throwing a big wrench in the plans that the recruiter is doing. The recruiter is going through a checklist and saying, oh, the hiring manager needs someone with this skill set. I found someone with this skill set. The hiring manager wants someone working in the Bay Area. This person says they'll move to the Bay Area or is in the Bay Area already. This is all good. And then as they lead you through the process, you go through interviews, you pass the interviews. Now you're working on offer um, that's kind of the last stage of the process. Then for you to go back to the first stage and say, actually, I don't know if I want to work in the Bay Area is really, um, I think, not going to make the recruiter happy. Yeah. So, so this is this is super helpful. So what would you say are some of the key elements that you should probably discuss with the recruiter right at the beginning? Location is definitely one. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I would say level is another one because mm-hmm. they need to calibrate the uh, level of interviews that you're going to be having. Because typically, you can only be interviewed by that level or higher. So for instance, let's say you were an L5 and you were coming in um, to interview at an L6 position somewhere else. And then after you go through interviews, you tell the recruiter, actually, I was hoping for an L7 position. The recruiter will be pulling out their hair because they're thinking, I just spent all this time talking to the hiring manager, getting a list of of interviewers for you who were um, L6 because they would be qualified to interview you at L6. And now you're telling me that you're only going to accept an L7. If I'd known that and I'd seen your resume, one, I could have dissuaded you to say that actually it looks like from your resume that you haven't done the scope of work. I don't think that I could, I should be wasting both of our times trying to mm-hmm. assemble a, an interview panel to interview you at L7. Mm-hmm. Um, so change your mind there is another throwing a wrench and going back to the, the beginning of the process. So before you start the interview process, I think you should be clear on the level that you're interviewing with or interviewing at as well as the location. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Level, location. What about title? Mm, um, at Well, here is, I think, is it's different between big companies and small companies at a big fan company typically they'll have titles assigned by uh by level like a level five would be senior level six would be staff seven would be senior staff etc and so you don't really get to choose so much um at different companies you might be able to choose an informal title as long as it's not a keyword like director or vp or ceo or something like that you may be able to say i'm the head of this or i'm a um uh, chief scientist in this. 
Hmm. Um, hmm. Or I'm maybe I'm an architect in this without using their official titles. But even so, you will have an official title within the HR system. So that's at a big company. At a startup, I think there's more leeway, and they don't uh, put as much um, as much weight on titles because titles to a startup are more free, and they can make everyone a director if they want to. You can come in and say, oh, sure, I'm the director of this, because it doesn't cost the startup any yeah. money to do so. Yeah. But a company, let's say Amazon, cannot bring in everyone and say, oh, you're a director here, because if they start doing that, then everyone's going to be uh, want to be a director, and it uh, cheapens the whole title for everybody else who's not. Yeah, 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 yeah. A anything else? So, yeah, I mean, I guess title, if it's important to you, and if the company is open to it level right. location those are probably things to discuss early on anything else right right um i think that there's generally more flexibility in equity than there is in pay especially once you get uh beyond um maybe even a little bit at level five and definitely beyond level five at level six and higher uh you can negotiate a bigger change in equity than you could initiate um, then you can negotiate for a change in base salary. And mm -hmm. bonus is usually a percentage on base salary. So once you've agreed on your base salary, the bonus won't change that much. So knowing that information can help you prepare to say that if I want the biggest change in my total compensation and I want to keep the recruiter on my side by not like you were asking, how do I not seem so pushy? One way of seeming more reasonable is to limit your request. Don't be going to the recruiter every other day and say, hey, can I have higher salary? Hey, can I have higher bonus? Hey, can I have a higher sign-on bonus? Hey, can I have a higher equity? Hey, can I have better equity refresh? Because the recruiters can be sick of all your, um, all your asks. What I would do is focus on the biggest bang for the buck. The buck here is how much time you have with the recruiter and how much patience they have with you. And the bang is you want to increase your total compensation. And to do that, I would say just focus on the equity part. Mm -hmm. um, recognize that the recruiter doesn't have that much ability to change the salary band, but they have a lot more to change on the equity band. So after they, um, even before they get to the initial verbal offer, uh, ask them, hey, um, I understand that you're going to put together this package for me. What's most important in this package out of everything is um, my total equity. Mm. If um, I don't even look at the other numbers, but the but how much that equity is is kind of the number one factor. Um, how much can you push on that for me? And then they'll say, okay, they're going to push on that number, and I think that's going to have the biggest impact on your total compensation. So that that is extremely helpful advice. So when you're asking a question like that to the recruiter when they're putting together that offer for you, that, hey, you, you know, to, to your earlier point, you've set the frame of reference that, hey, I want to be in the higher end of this band on levels or FYI. And then you say that, mm -hmm. uh, can you help me with that? I think equity is perhaps the most important thing here. Can you help me get the most for myself over here? What are you, exp what are you hoping to hear from them? What kind um, of response are you expecting? What? What am I hoping to hear from them in that conversation? Or what am I hoping to hear from them when the verbal offer comes in? At which time? What do you mean? So in, in this, uh, so when they're putting, so I'm assuming you're on a phone call or a Zoom call. Uh, I'm just trying to like visualize the conversation and trying to give people a, a little bit of, of a script almost to follow, right? So you, uh, you first set a frame of reference with the recruiter, and then you're asking them if they can help push on the equity piece. You know, one, one option, of course, is for the recruiter to just say, yeah, you know, I'll see what I can do. And that's great. But can you expect any follow up questions from the recruiter or perhaps even like, hey, I don't think that's very, very probable. So just if you can help give some shape to what that conversation might go like with the recruiter. I see. Um, even when you're asking for the equity piece, um I'm debating now whether or not it's a good idea to bring up numbers. I think you could. Uh, you could frame everything in terms of the total equity number. Let's, so let's say that you're hoping to get a million dollars in equity over, um, over four years. So that would be 250,000 a year in equity. Mm -hmm. Then, um, you could just frame to the recruiter, Hey, um, I'm, focused very much on the equity piece, I see from my research 
and uh, from talking to my friends that the range of equity that I could expect would vary from like 0.7 to uh, 1.1. And this is all in millions of dollars. And then you could say to the recruiter, I'm hoping to land on the higher end of that range. And mm. is that something you could uh, push yeah. um, push on for me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then hopefully the recruiter will say, yes, that's something uh, I understand where you're coming from. Um, your, your, your research is correct. This is kind of in the range of, in the ballpark of what we're offering. Let me see what I can do for you. Yeah, yeah. Is do, have you heard of cases where the recruiter just says no? Sorry, that's not possible. Um, I have. <laughs> uh, I had one client, unfortunately, who I think ended up on the um, not on as great terms with their recruiter, and they came off as being kind of pushy, and the recruiter uh, was not willing to to budge for them. And so when they were asking for a higher equity numbers, the recruiter basically said, nope, sorry, this is our final offer. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> so that, yeah, so that's actually really good to know. And I guess um, the person that you are negotiating with throughout this process is the recruiter. Like, Should you be reaching out to anyone else, or you're only speaking with the recruiter? I would say in the majority of cases, you are just interacting with the recruiter. And um, a lot of people think that, oh, I'm interacting with the company. But there are a lot of people in the company and the recruiter is the face of the company to you. It's possible that you might know the hiring manager that you're interviewing with. And if you know the hiring manager as a personal friend, uh, maybe you could reach out and discuss with them. But in a lot of cases, the hiring manager doesn't have visibility, um, mm. much less power to influence the offer so much. At most, a hiring manager can write a letter to the offer committee saying, oh, I'd like to request um, that this person be considered as an exceptional candidate and please kind of make uh, the best possible offer you can for them because, and then the hiring manager needs to come up with a lot of justifications. They'll look at the interview feedback and say, because I'm looking for someone with specifically the skill set. And in the interviews and in the references, this person shows that they have great aptitude in this and they will be an amazing hire for the company, an amazing hire for my team. So I really, really want them on my team. If the hiring manager goes through that kind of effort, that's something that the um, that the offer committee will take into account. However, even then, their hiring manager is not going to have visibility into the final numbers that the offer committee mm -hmm. is. So in that case, the recruiter has more visibility and more influence over being able to try to convince the offer committee to give you those numbers. That's okay. So basically, the decision maker is the offer committee. And as a candidate, obviously, you have no idea who is on that offer committee. And Correct. really, the only person who has a who is influencing that offer committee is the recruiter. Right. Gotcha. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. I see. Um, this is extremely helpful. Ed, have you seen any? Um, actually, one more question for you before we get into the mistakes. What tactics have you seen candidates use that are very helpful in successfully negotiating your comp? The tactics, I would say, maybe more strategically, two big things. And um, I've talked about both of them in this uh, podcast already. But the first thing is to have a solid knowledge base so you know the numbers you're coming in with and you don't come off as kind of flailing wildly. You are in a delicate negotiation with recruiter and it helps your case to seem informed and not um, ignorant to the recruiter to come in as an equal partner. That's uh, the first one to to be to have as much knowledge as possible coming in. And the second one is with that knowledge, build a good relationship with the recruiter. Don't look at the negotiation as a it's me versus the recruiter and whatever I can do to either uh, push him or her or bully them or kind of um, pull the wool over their eyes or otherwise manipulate them to try to get a higher offer. That is generally not going to work because mm -hmm. the recruiter has been through many more offer negotiations than you have because it's their job. And the recruiter is um, in a position of power, but also wants what's best for you. I think there are other analogies that you could look at 
to try to understand your ideal relationship with a recruiter. One of them is a police officer stops you. <laughs> the police officer is obviously in a position of power, but it's to great it's greatly to your advantage to try to get on the police officer's good side, not through like being obsequious or flattering or trying to like um, name drop or, um, or do kind of shady things, but to have a real human connection with a police officer, understand that they're doing their job and that you're trying to make their lives as easy as possible for them to do their jobs. Right. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, yeah, of course. I know. I, I think these two things make a ton of sense. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. when we were initially having uh, our discussion for the podcast, one of the tactics you had also mentioned was how having another offer can give you a lot of leverage. Yes, that's probably the third most important thing um, after having the knowledge and having good relationship with your recruiter. Having another offer is the strongest leverage that you can have on the offer committee. And it's leverage that you can give to the recruiter as well. Um, if you're, if you are in a position where you're interviewing, then I would say it's always ideal if you can interview at multiple companies, especially at uh, companies that you feel like are going to give you uh, similar strong offers because mm-hmm. you can take the highest offer and kind of shop them or shop that offer around. Generally, most companies will match each other's offers. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say that I were interviewing at uh, Apple and Amazon and Netflix, for instance. Um, one of them offers me 500, another offers me 550, another offers me 600 total compensation. Um, but let's say in that order, Apple offered me 500, uh, Amazon offered me 550, and then Netflix offered me 600. But I really wanted to work at Apple, but I like Netflix's salary offer. If I got all three of those offers, typically I can go back to Apple and say, you know, I'm interviewing at all these companies. I like your... Um, your company and your project and your group the best, but I have this outstanding offer from Netflix. Um, and here it is. You could forward them the offer letter, for instance, um, and say, I have an offer from Netflix at 600,000. Would you match that? And typically Apple will match that if they've already given you an offer because it's staring them in their face, black and white, that Netflix Mm -hmm. is going to pay you 600,000. That means as an engineer or a product manager, you are worth 600,000 if another fan company is willing to pay that to you. So they should pay that, be willing to pay that to you as well because that's just what you're worth. And then you can end up with your favorite job uh, at your favorite company with the highest offer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think another interesting thing you'd mentioned was that you can use another offer to raise your salary at your existing company also with, you know, just at your current company, not changing jobs or anything. Yes. Yes. This is, um, I think this is controversial because uh, some people will say that, oh, you're showing disloyalty to mm-hmm. your company by doing that. Um, there are two points of view. I think I would characterize them as the loyalist point of view and then the mercenary point of view, <laughs> just to kind of put very descriptive names to them. The loyalist, the loyalist point of view is, is saying if you're going out behind your kind of manager's back or behind your company's back and interviewing with other companies and you get another offer and then you come back and kind of shove it in the face of your management <laughs> saying, I should be worth this much, pay me that much. And then the company re- um, reluctantly ups your pay to be doing that, the loyalist will say, well, you better be counting your days at that company because you've shown your company that you're willing to backstab them. They will be willing to backstab you and let you go whenever they want. So that's the loyalist point of view. <laughs> the mercenary point of view is that um, let's all be real and transparent and honest with each other. Companies are only wanting to pay people as much as they as people will accept and stay working at the company and people are wanting to make as much money and willing to go to different companies that are going to pay them more. It's a free market where companies, um, it's, um, what do you call it? At will employment. Um, California is an at will employment state, which means the company for no reason at all may, may tell me, sorry, your employment is canceled 
just because uh, we don't want you here anymore. Or you could go to the company and say, sorry, I don't want to work at here anymore. I just don't want to. And it's no hard feelings. No one can sue each other for doing so. The real um, effect of at-will employment is that companies should always be trying to hire um, people and uh, at the lowest rate possible and then training them up and then paying them just enough that they continue to stay at the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, people should constantly be interviewing to see what position they could get with their current new skill set. Yeah. Now, as a result of inertia, um, the market is not as efficient at that. And most people end up staying at a company longer um, and for less pay than the company would be willing to pay them. Mm-hmm. But the company would lose a lot of profit if they paid everyone what they were worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like so, your classic market so dynamic. So I think yeah. I'm, I'm being clear that I fall more in the mercenary camp than the loyalist camp. I think the loyalist camp is not a real reflection of how the job market is in the modern tech industry. Maybe it was that way for our parents' generation, or maybe it's that way in different companies, sorry, in different countries around the world or different industries. But I would say that for the tech industry in Silicon Valley, um, the mercenary camp is really the, uh, the correct way of looking at it. And to get back to your question, if you interview for another company and you get a higher offer, but you realize you prefer the job at your current company, bring that offer back and say, you know, I interviewed at other companies because um, because people are always talking to recruiters and I interviewed and got this job offer. So um, what do you think? Basically, I wouldn't be a jerk about it when you go back to your uh, your management. You should just ask your management gently, what should I do about this job offer? So your management, you'll get uh, two answers from them, or one of two answers. One answer would be they'll let, they'll let you go to, to either say, sorry, we can't pay you uh, that, that amount. If they can't pay you that amount, then I think you have already shown your hand, and so you should go to the other company. So mm-hmm. if, you're about, if you're about to do this, you should take the risk that your current company is not willing to pay it and that you'll look like a fool if you stay at your current current company and (laughs) if they call your bluff. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) But more likely the company will be like, yep, this person realized that how much they're worth in the the current job market, we'll match that. And they may not match it exactly dollar for dollar, but they may rework your compensation such that you're making about the same now at your current company that you are in the uh, with the offer that you got. So yeah. just by doing that, going through interviews, getting the offer, be willing to um, bluff in some sense to your current company to say that I'm worth this much uh, with the implied assumption that if the current company doesn't pay you that, then you have no choice for your own career but to go to that uh, jump and pay at another company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think this is a really important point that you should do this only if you are prepared that if your company does not match that offer then you will you know it's good if you just leave versus like stick around with with the lower right right because if you stick around what it tells your management is either somehow you had fabricated that that job offer and you didn't really have it or that um that you're too afraid to make a move and if you're too afraid to make a move that signals that you're so powerless in your negotiation to uh, with your current company that they never have to give you a raise again because you're afraid to move. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, this is extremely helpful, Ed. I think you, you've called out quite a lot of mistakes that candidates tend to make during the entire process, but anything that perhaps we might have missed or anything else you'd like to touch on? Sure. I would say that one mistake that candidates make probably the biggest mistake is they never get started on the process. And when I say get started on the process, I mean keep their eye on the market, respond to high-quality recruiters, and be interviewing. Mm-hmm. So in the movie Glen Gary, Glen Ross, there's um, the famous line from that movie is always be closing um, because the chief salesperson is trying to instill in the junior sales people that their number one job is they should be making sales and closing sales. And so I would say to anybody working in the tech industry, you should always be interviewing, not like every month, but at least every year to two years, you should be looking at where you are in your career and looking around to see if there are other opportunities. And could you get a 20, 30, even possibly a 50% pay bump by 
going to another company, interviewing, and then going um, switching companies or bringing that back to your current company to equalize your market worth. That's a really good point. Yeah, because I think people tend to think about interviewing only when they're unhappy in their job and are actively looking to switch jobs. But they don't think mm-hmm. of interviewing as a as kind of like their way to maintain, to stay current with the market and to make sure that their comp is reflecting what the reality is of the market. So that's a really good point. Yeah. Exactly. You should look at your compensation the way you look at your career and that no one's going to be looking out for you. The same way that you look after your own health by hopefully exercising, by eating well, uh, no one else is going to be doing that for you. Um, You should be looking at your career financial health that way too. Just regular checkups to say, am I being paid the correct amount? Because my company is just giving lowest the lowest possible raises that it thinks will keep the majority of the people here. And if the market rate is rising beyond that, especially if I see people around me who are interviewing and leaving because they're getting higher offers, then that should be a big wake-up call to me that we're all being underpaid and that I should be doing the same thing. Even if I want to work at the current, stay at my current company because I love it, I should be paid a fair market rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um if if you know if someone comes back to you and says that hey but is it okay if i'm switching my job every year to two years do you have any and and of course you're talking about the tech industry which perhaps is a bit different should they be worried about that that i'll have so many jumps on my resume right i wouldn't worry about it if you are so good that you can be getting um, these pay raises every year or two years. It just means that you are um, accelerated, um, you are great at your job, and you shouldn't just be getting pay raises, but you should be getting more responsibility because they're correlated too. It's not possible that you're going to be, say, a level three fresh out of college engineer um, and then um, jumping every year to two years and getting a 20% bump uh, and do this for uh, three or four times because <laughs> the market just doesn't uh, go up that fast. At one of those jumps, you must have jumped into a higher level, into the, say, the next level above, which would be like level four at, uh, at Google or at Meta. Um, and in, but in doing so, you effectively job hopped into a promotion. Mm-hmm. And that is totally normal and accepted. Um, if I see that on a resume, I think, oh, that's someone who's really kind of uh, on the ball with their career. And if I were to hire that person, I know that they would do a great job because they're expanding their job skills. They're, uh, they're proactive and they're a go-getter. I might have trouble keeping them on the team unless I give them something high profile enough that they'll get promoted in my company such that they'll get that pay bump at my company. Mm. But I know that I'm dealing with a high performer if I see them jumping around Mm. like that. Mm. That's actually a really interesting perspective because it's almost, it's almost like giving a signal to the company. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. Right. Awesome. Ed, this was extremely helpful. Thank you so much. I think this was a very, very helpful discussion. Do you want to talk a little bit about your company and how it helps clients? Sure. Thank you. Um, I think that this podcast uh, touches on a lot of the questions that clients have. And clients, generally clients I work with are ones who are in the middle of switching jobs. And then they've talked to um, most of most of my clients are through word of mouth referrals. So they've talked to friends who have uh, either worked with me directly or had other friends that have worked with me. And they don't know where to start because typically uh, when they come into a job negotiation, they get an offer and they like it or they don't like it. So they sign or they don't sign because that's how we buy most things. Um, with maybe the exception of buying a house, most people don't negotiate for anything that they buy. You don't go into a McDonald's and negotiate the price of a burger. Um, there's not even that much negotiation in car sale these, these days. But um, negotiating for your compensation, and I realize most of this conversation we've been talking about the big tech companies, but most recently I negotiated a client who was uh, joining not a startup, but a, yeah, I guess not a small startup, but a company that had, is not yet public, has gone through a few rounds of funding, and they were interviewing for a C-level position, mm-hmm. um, not CEO, but one of the other C-levels. Um, and they told me that the offer that uh, they got, and then I put together some spreadsheets for them, talked with them through, and then we decided what would be a stretch goal to ask for. And we essentially asked for double the amount of equity. And um, they came back and said, 
the CEO who they were interacting with because they were not interacting with a hiring manager. Typically, if you're interviewing for a C-level position, it's not HR who's going to be talking to you. It's the CEO themselves <laughs> yeah. who are trying to sell you onto joining the team. Yeah. They got double their equity. So uh-huh. this is a case in which their final offer was millions of dollars higher than their initial offer. And a lot of it was um, the services I provided was talking them through the situation, understanding everything, looking at competitive offers, putting together spreadsheets, um, comparing with the other offers I'd seen for that position at other companies of that size, and arming them with a lot of information and the right attitude to go in with these uh, negotiations. Yeah. Wow. This is extreme. Wow. I mean, definitely. I, I mean, you clearly seem to have a lot of knowledge about this space. You yourself have worked in tech. So, um I think anyone who is perhaps uh, looking to get some help with negotiating their job offer, I think this could be something very helpful to consider. What's the name of your uh, website, uh, the URL? It's zerosum.net. So it's for zero-sum consulting. And I chose the name zero-sum because in negotiations with the company, it really is a zero-sum game. Every dollar that the company keeps is a dollar that's not in your pocket. And every dollar that you're getting is essentially a company away, sorry, a dollar away from the company coffers. So you have to come in with it to negotiation with that attitude of, sorry, this is a zero-sum game. I'm trying to get as much money as I can from the company, while at the same time trying to play nice with the recruiter. Yeah, yeah. And we'll also include the link to the company in the show notes. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ed. I really appreciate your time. And I'm sure this is going to be a very helpful discussion for a lot of people. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you aren't already a subscriber of the podcast, please do subscribe. We'll be publishing a lot of other episodes that cover various jobs as well as bring you career advice from seasoned professionals from around the world. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. Just go to our website at learneducatediscover.com. In the newsletter, we share updates on new episodes as well as bring you lots of interesting career resources that we think might help you. You can also email us. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com. If you have any ideas at all on how we can improve the podcast, how we can improve the content, What are some other things that we can add to the website or the newsletter? We would love to hear from you. Simply email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com. You can also tweet at us at LED underscore curator. That's at LED underscore curator. All right, I'll see you in the next episode. Until then, bye-bye.